Welcome back to Christ is the Cure. This week we have a shorter episode as we wrap up through Nicaea, and this will be probably our shortest episode in the series as we conclude the series. So I hope that this series has been beneficial, that you have enjoyed it. Uh, there's always more depth that we could go into, um, so I hope that what I have selected for each episode has been beneficial and some shape or form. And so today we're just going to wrap up the creed by looking at the clause we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Um, so here we reach the end of our examination with a fairly straightforward confession. Uh, historically, the general resurrection was assumed except within, as you could guess, Gnostic circles because of their view of the material world. So other than the Gnostics themselves, this idea of the general resurrection uh, was universally assumed. And really it was the Gnostics that prompted the various uh, apologetics for this theological truth. Uh, The church turned to arguments of God's general ability to resurrect the dead which, of course, was signified by Jesus' bodily resurrection uh, in particular. Uh, And Tertullian would argue that God had created, and thus he could recreate. And so there was this connection between creation and recreation. And, of course, Gnostics created that dichotomy between the transcendent supreme being and those who were demiurges who created the material world, which are blunders, essentially. Um. So ultimately, you find that the apologetic for the created material world led to an apologetic for the resurrection, right? They aligned with one another. And essentially, it was boiling down to God as creator. So the text that spoke of the resurrection were pointed to, and the final judgment was essentially reaffirmed. The age to come was seen as an important point of enacted justice and glory-filled blessedness. And as one can ascertain from that, the wicked could expect the judgment, while those who were found in Christ could expect the blessedness. Uh, so to the wicked, one would expect to enter into the lake of fire with no hope of reversal, except in a rare doctrine found in Origins, thinking that would eventually influence a few others, like one of our Cappadocians, Gregory of Nyssa. And uh, their understanding would be that the lake of fire was essentially a type of purgatory, and that ultimately the end of the wicked Uh, would be their restoration to God. So all people would be saved, but there's a special salvation for those who are in Christ before this being thrown into the lake of fire. So the lake of fire is more, in a sense, a means of restoration rather than punitive in this Christian universalism, as it's often called. Uh, But that was really the fringe position, despite what people have said over the last decade or two. Ultimately, what we find is a fair balance between eternal conscious torment and conditionalism. Um, And this balance is really just 
moved towards the eternal conscious torment side with influence of Tertullian and then Augustine. They helped solidify eternal conscious torment as the predominant tradition, uh, which is why it's often called the traditionalist view. Uh, and it's usually based on the idea of the immortality or rather the indestructibility of the soul. In either case, though, in both of these views, judgment awaits the wicked and it's irreversible and it's eternal in terms of its duration. Uh, conditionalism says that it's eternal in its finality, while eternal conscious torment says it's eternal in terms of its punishing. From there, we find that everything was heavily focused upon Christ's second coming, uh, and there was this indication of the final consummation of God's victory over sin, death, and the wicked. Uh, so for those found in Christ, they had the promise of blessed immortality and life in the new heavens and new earth, and they enjoyed the life with the triune God. Ultimately, you have this stark juxtaposition between those who are in Christ and those who are without Christ. Berardino, I apologize if I've mispronounced his name again, says this about the church's view, and we'll quote him at length. Uh, Eternal life with God brings an incomparable blessing, communion with God amid the communion of the saints with God and with all who reflect God's holy love. This community embraces both the living faithful and the faithful departed who now enjoy eternal life with God. There's a special union between the faithful on earth and in heaven, enabled in their mutual communion with one head and with each other, a communion sustained by prayer, faith, hope, and love. The community or fellowship of the saints is a recurrent theme in the New Testament that points to communion with God and communion with all who share in God's life. The Son prayed to the Father that the whole community of faith may be one as we are one. The prevailing scriptural term for the final state of this blessing is eternal life. This life is transmuted into a future life of glory that does not reach its full expression until the general resurrection, the final judgment, and the final destiny of the faithful. The living God permits the new life with God to continue without ceasing. Eternal life brings to completion the work of grace begun in this life, where one is delivered from sin, its roots, and consequences, fulfilling God's purposes in creation, redemption, and consummation. So basically we have that this work begins, but the ultimate glorification comes later. Right now we are free from the power of sin, but not the presence of sin, but eventually we will have freedom from the presence of sin altogether. Um, He continues, The transformation begun in faithful baptism does not come to nothing but lives on. The spiritual life begun in the faith, imparted in the spiritual rebirth, grows by sanctifying grace, and lives on by completing grace. The characteristic feature of eternal life is the complete and unending enjoyment of life with God. In Christian teaching, heaven is both a place and a condition of eternal rest and joy in the Lord. It is to be present with the Lord. Heaven is where the blessed clearly see God and comparably enjoy the blessings of divine glory. Heaven is represented as a secure lodging for unutterable glory, joy, and peace. Its most prominent features are tranquility, holiness, light, beholding, happiness, and the presence of the Lord. What happens in heaven is full and unending participation in God. Um, Let me find my place. Um, Those whose names are written in heaven have come to God. They are the spirits of the righteous men made perfect. Jesus promised his disciples that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may be where I am. So what are the biblical support? Well, the biblical support, um, this is one of those truths that we all recognize, we all um, understand the need for, except for the few fringe cult groups that would say that Jesus already returned. We know that all people will 
know when Jesus comes. Now, there are different eschatologies, uh, pre-mill, historic pre-mill, post-millennial, all-millennial, etc. Uh, but we all agree that Christ will return. Just the details of that um, are where we differ. And just as well, Christians would do well to remember the general resurrection where the wicked and the righteous will be resurrected to life and be judged, and the wicked will be thrown into the lake of fire, and the righteous will be given their transformed, glorified bodies. So when the wicked and those in Christ are raised to judgment, those in Christ will be glorified and live eternally in the new heavens and the new earth. So thanks be to Christ for his imputed righteousness, by whom we can look at Proverbs 12, 28 and apply it to ourselves. In the way of righteousness, there's life. Along the path is immortality. John calls this resurrection the resurrection of life in John 5, 29. And Paul describes it as the mortal putting on immortality in 1 Corinthians 15, a great chapter. Um, which is exclusive to those who belong to Christ. Now, when the wicked are raised to life in Judgment Day, uh, they will face the capital punishment of the Lord, the second death, as Revelation 21.8 calls it. The Bible states repeatedly that the wicked will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Within the pages of Revelation, we read that if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, Revelation 20. 15. This is a punitive, rightful judgment against the wicked. In contrast to this, we read that those who have conquered and have access to the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, Revelation 2, 7, or the new Eden, um, will be living an abundant life with God. Revelation continues to be very clear that those who do not have their name written in the book of life will be tossed into the second death, that is the lake of fire and sulfur in Revelation 21, 8. There's a lot of typology with Sodom and Gomorrah, and you can read the last chapter of Isaiah to get a real picture of this as the Lord and his people stand and look at all the corpses of those who have perished instead of being found alongside him. Revelation closes with John calling his recipients to turn to the Lord, reminding them, blessed are those who Wash the robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter into the city by the gates in Revelation 22, 14. Our application is simple. Praise God for his glorious gospel and say amen to the beautiful confession that there is joy to be found in the heavenly realm. Thanks be to God, the Father, for his salvation granted to us through his Son, Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit. I hope you have enjoyed this series. I know this was a short episode. God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend and we'll see you in season three.